Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and welcome to this week's episode of The Hedge Podcast. This is a show where I talk about investing, personal finance, basically growing wealth to help you live the life you want to live, to live your ideal life. That's what what money's all about, right? There's no point building up a bunch of money if it's not going towards having a lifestyle for you and your family that is one that you want. We're only here once, right? So today on the show, I've got a number of different things I want to have a talk through. I've got a question from a listener of the show, a couple of questions from listeners of the show, actually. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the cost of living crisis that we're going through, but I'm sick and bloody tired of talking about how bad we have things, how much worse things are getting, how much, how expensive things are getting and all that stuff. That is all true, but I think it's time that we take some control of our own income, our own expenditure, our own financial life, and we look at things in a bit more of a positive light. So I'm going to be looking at, or just talking generally about the way we can tackle this problem from a slightly different angle. Uh, in in broad terms, and then for those of you who are who are married or who are in a couple, I want to talk through some specific things that you can do to improve the situation. Um, so the first thing I wanted to have a, a little bit of a talk about today, or just kind of a heads up, um, I got loads of messages from you guys on Instagram and on email telling me about another bloody scammer. I on Instagram this is um, honestly it really pisses me off these these scammers and there's really nothing I can do about it um, except have you guys report it for me report it myself uh, that's that's all we can really do you know and and as always I think it's just really important to stay really vigilant when you're on social media I mean you guys know right you, you know it's it is actually pretty obvious um, it's really weird because they tend to use exactly the same phrasing uh, I've been contacted on Twitter and re- loads of different places that um, people trying to scam me um, using the same terminology. How's your trading going? Is often how how it starts, and they try to sell you some um, bullshit crypto scam or something. So just just stay really vigilant on it, guys. With, with Instagram, I'll never DM you guys. Uh, I'll never go through people who follow me and get in touch with you directly. You know, if you contact me on Instagram, obviously I'll respond to you. Um, but just be really, really careful. And if if somebody, not just me, but I know this happens with loads of people who create content, just really double check the name. So for example, what, basically what they do, these, these scammers, is they create an account with a name that looks very similar. So for, for me, for example, with this one, my name on Instagram, I changed it ironically to try and make it harder for to to uh, be impersonated but anyway the hedge with Jason is my name on Instagram and they uh, change it to the created one sorry with that said the edge with Jason so when it's got this, the same profile picture as me it's got the same content as me it can be really easy to to kind of miss that at first glance so just make sure you're, you're obviously staying really uh, on top of things um, but like I say, you know, you guys are onto it. You guys are switched on. You know all that. That's why you've all been getting in touch with me, letting me know. So thank you. If you see that, please block and report those wankers. Um, the other thing, just to kind of recap, was last week I did the first edition of Friday Lunch Money on YouTube. This is the new segment I'm doing on the YouTube channel um, where I am going live 12 o'clock every Friday and kind of talking through the week in investing in personal finance. Like I say, um, like I've said before on this podcast, I do talk about investing in personal finance a lot, obviously, but sometimes delve more into kind of businessy topics and career topics, that sort of thing. Friday Lunch Money is pure money content. It's about stuff that the Chancellor might have said. It's about 
rates that have changed. It's about investments that are um, going crazy. It's everything that's happened in the week of uh, newsworthy events in in this niche, in this investing personal finance world. So if you jump on the um, jump onto the channel, it's just the hedge is the channel. Um, you can find a link to it at the website, the hedge.io, as well as just searching for it on YouTube. Um, every Friday, 12 o'clock, I, I do that. And last week was the first one. It went really well. I was really happy with it. Um, had a number of you guys jumping on um, live as it was happening. And then some a few people who've, who've watched it afterwards as well. Um, I got some questions coming through, which is great because again, you know, that's the the main thing that I want to get from or be able to do in, in those sessions is answer your questions live. So I've got, I'll have topics to talk through. I'll have stuff to, to discuss, but hopefully that prompts questions for you guys to, to ask me and we make it a bit of a two-way street. So um, book that bookmark that in your diaries, 12 o'clock every Friday. Jump over to the YouTube channel and check out Friday Lunch Money. Um, right. First question I've had this week has come through one of my from one of my listeners, Jen, who actually I had a, had a good chat with um, last week. We talked through her situation. She had some questions she wanted to uh, she she wanted to ask me. So we had a good chat, and she sent me a follow up where she had a couple of other ones. And this one I thought was as a good one. So Jess, uh, sorry, Je- Jess, Jen has asked me about the FSCS limit for investing. Now I'm just going to bring the actual question up, so I am not paraphrasing. So I'm actually reading out the the email that that Jen has sent through to me. So question is, should one pay attention to the £85,000 protection limit when investing? For example, if one did have an ISA that got up to £85,000, would it be prudent to start a new ISA with a different organisation? And that is a very, very good question because something that comes up fairly frequently, uh, especially when I'm talking to clients about about investments, they often will ask me, well, is this covered by the FSCS? Now, let's just take a, a very quick step back and explain what the FSCS is. The Financial Services Compensation Scheme was is a scheme that is backed by the government. That means that if you have up to £85,000 with a financial institution and that financial institution goes belly up, goes completely bankrupt, they will pay you that money back. So if you've got 70k in a bank account and the bank goes bankrupt, you will get 70k given back to you by the government. If you have 100k, you will only get 85 and you'll have lost the last 15. So it only covers up to 85,000 and that is per institution. So it's per banking group. So that's a, a kind of a key thing to remember is it's not per bank, it's per banking group. So for example, you know, Lloyd's and Halifax owned by the same company. So you wouldn't get a separate limit for both of those. But if you had one of Lloyd's account and one NatWest account, you would have, you would have 85,000 for, for each of those accounts. So it's a really common thing to keep a, a, an eye on, especially or particularly when you have cash accounts. Let's be honest, the chances of Lloyd's or Halifax or, or Lloyd's and Halifax or NatWest or, or Barclays or anyone going bankrupt is pretty slim. But as we saw in 2008, that just because something is uh, unlikely or unusual um, doesn't mean it can't happen. So it's always something to, to be aware of. The reason why it is different with investments is because when you're investing money with a company, the company doesn't actually hold your investment on their own balance sheet. So if you're giving money to a bank, the bank is actually taking custody of those assets and then those assets that that a bank account is sitting on their balance sheet and they then use that money as security to lend that out. So, you know, if you you put 85,000 with NatWest, they are going to then lend 
well, I think with fractional reserve banking, it's a lot. Uh, I don't know the actual figure, but they could potentially lend like a million quid to other people off the back of that deposit that you've you've uh, you've left with them. So it forms a integral part of the way that they run their business. And actually, you know, because of fractional reserve banking, because the bank doesn't have to have every pound in savings on their books to lend out that same amount, that's where you can end up with this this uh, situation where a bank goes bankrupt and there's not enough money to go around. There's not enough money to, to pay everybody back. So that is really the reason why the FSCS was was put into place. Now, the thing with investments is that the company you're investing with is purely a middleman between you and underlying holdings. So, you know, let's just use a really simple example like Vanguard, right? When you're investing in a Vanguard ETF, Vanguard are the ones who are managing those investments, but you're not, they're not actually they don't own that money. They don't hold that money. That money is invested on your behalf and in your name, but with them making those investments. So, if you own uh, if you own a, a Vanguard ETF, without getting into all the specific details of how the actual legal ownership structure and everything works, you own all the underlying assets that are held within that ETF. So, you know, if if ten percent of the ETF is invested in Apple shares, you own those Apple shares. So. In that example, and again, it's not a realistic example, but you know, to go to kind of the, the technical side of things, if Vanguard were to go bankrupt, it's just the management arm of that company that would be impacted. Your underlying investment holdings would still can you still own those Apple shares. Vanguard again are managing those on your behalf or, or buying them and selling them on your behalf, but you own those investments. So actually the FSCS doesn't really apply to investments um, because the FSCS doesn't protect against market downturn. So if you invest in a company and that company, the share price underperforms or even goes completely bankrupt, the FSCS does not cover that because that is an investment. You've uh, made made that investment on the understanding that there's risks involved and therefore you know that that, that money could go to zero. So that is that is very different. So for in 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 lots of ways, the FSCS doesn't actually apply to investments at all. Now, there's one kind of caveat to that in that if you are in the process of transferring money to an investment, so let's say you have an account with, I don't know, Hargreaves Lansdowne, for example. Again, it's, a, it's the same example. Hargreaves Lansdowne, you don't, you're not giving that money to Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hargreaves Lansdowne are investing that on your behalf into the funds that you've selected. Um but what can happen is you often will transfer the money or you will transfer the money from your own bank account onto the Hargreaves Lansdowne cash account and then from the Hargreaves Lansdowne cash account into the investment funds. Now, whilst it's sitting in the Hargreaves Lansdowne cash account, it is actually sitting in a bank account. So at that point, you are exposed to a potential bankruptcy event. So it's only in those that short period of time between transferring the money to the platform that you're investing with and actually investing that money where there's potentially something that could happen that could impact you from an FSCS standpoint. Now, the chances of something happening, number one, for you know big, large investment companies, the chances of an FSCS um, kind of event where it would protect you happening at all are slim. The chances of it happening within the space of a few days whilst the money is transferred from cash into the investments is even slimmer. So it's kind of so 
unlikely as to not worry about. If you really are worried about it, um, you can always just transfer in 85,000 pound limits uh, amounts, but I wouldn't necessarily worry too much about that. So I guess to answer your question, Jen, um, if you're investing the funds that are in an ISA, it doesn't really make any difference if you've got 85,000 quid in a single ISA or if you've got 500,000 in a single ISA. You don't really have SS, FSCS protection because those investments those investments you're invested in are going to do what they're going to do. And if they all go to zero, if you just pick really shitty investments, the government's not going to refund you the money for that. You know, It's only in the event of things like bankruptcy, like fraud, where that is actually going to, going to kick in. So, Really good question though, because it is something that, that comes up quite frequently. Um, and obviously keeping in mind that if you've got a cash ISA, that is different. A cash ISA is basically just a bank account. So with a cash ISA, yes, in that case, you are better off um, only having uh, up to the 85,000 pound limit because the same thing applies. It's, it's a cash account for all intents and purposes, just with a slightly different wrapper about, around it. So thank you very much, Jess. Uh, Jen, why do I keep doing that? Thank you very much, Jen, for sending uh, that question through. I really appreciate it. Guys, if you have questions, if you have things you'd like me to answer on the podcast, then make sure you jump on the website, thehedge.io, and drop me a line. Let me know what's going on, what questions you've got. Now, I've got uh, another one, another question that's come through from George. And this one, very, very simple, very, very simple question. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, bring it up because it's quite funny. George has sent me an email again and the email has nothing in the body of it, it just says regards George, but he's put in the, the, the heading or the, the title or subject line of the, of the email, VXX ETF closed, why? I love it, George. Straight to the point. No mucking around. There's my question. What are you going to do about it? Right. So, it is a good question. Um, And I'm going to talk through, number one, what is VXX? So, if you guys are investing in ETFs, you'll um, understand that, you know, these are the ticker symbols that are used. So, if you're investing in direct equities, they all have kind of a little symbol that represents the share. Um, and then with ETFs, they have the same thing. So they're exchange traded, so they will have a, a ticker symbol. Now, uh, VXX is the IPATH Series B S&P 500 VIX Short-Term Futures ETN, which is run by Barclays. Um, that's a bit of a mouthful, right? What is it? Okay, let's break this down. Number one, S&P 500, right? So it's, it invests in an instrument that is to do with the S&P 500, which is the Standard & Poor's 500, the American 500 biggest companies in America. Right, so it's an American fund. VIX, short-term futures ETM. What is the VIX? The VIX is the volatility index, and I believe it's based out of Chicago. And this is an index that, well, index funds, as we know, tracks um, track a basket of equities generally. An index will track, well, a basket basket of investments, let's say, because there's plenty of indexes for things like bonds and that sort of thing. But an index basically attracts a market sector. So it will track the the S&P 500, for example, S&P index funds will track the S&P 500, FTSE 100 index funds will track the uh, UK stock market, the FTSE 100. Um, There's index funds for basically everything. The VIX is an index that tracks not um, a basket of investments, but it tracks the level of volatility that is being experienced. So this particular fund tracks the level of volatility that's being experienced in the S&P 500. So effectively, they use a bunch of um, 
complex um, a complex derivatives and and different types of financial instruments that look to replicate. Uh, or look to profit, should I say, from higher levels of volatility. So if there's a large level of volatility being experienced in the market, this fund should perform quite well. If markets are very flat and performing in a boring way, if there's not a lot of volatility, then this this fund sh- should uh, won't be performing very well. And it's really, really interesting because Barclays have basically come out and said that they are closing this fund. They're not going to be operating anymore. And that there's going to be basically no issuance of new new units in this in this particular fund and there's some some um, talk of the town that potentially the fund will be be closed altogether now this is really interesting because the market is volatile at the moment right the market is volatile we all know that we all know the, all know the reasons behind that so that would that would go to show that now is really the, uh, probably the time where this this fund could potentially provide some really good returns. And, uh, and, and there's probably been people who have been pouring some money into this over the last year, 18 months, expecting markets to start to go through a bit of a bumpy time. We've had a couple of years of very strong growth. You know, as I've said a number of times before, when you have a couple of periods of, of or a couple of really good years, you start to think there's probably some volatility on the horizon. So people are putting money into this and kind of now just when time it's it's looking like looking like there could be some volatility and there is some volatility that's being experienced, they close the fund. And if I could just find the quote, I had it up here and now I've just scrolled away from it. Um, let me see if I can find it. Okay, here we go. So the statement from Barclays, this suspension is being imposed because Barclays does not currently have sufficient issuance capacity to support further sales from inventory and any further issuance of the ETNs, which is exchange traded notes, which is what this is. So let's just go back over those words again, right? Barclays does not have, sorry, Barclays does not currently have sufficient issuance capacity to support further sales. So all that that means is the risk in issuing this fund has gotten too high for us. So this kind of flies in the face a bit of the whole point that this fund was created. It's created to take advantage of periods where there's higher levels of risk. And then when there are higher levels of risk, Barclays has decided that it's too much risk for them and they can't afford to be on the losing side of the trade. And that is effectively all that is happening here. You know, the, the Barclays have decided that shit. We could actually lose a lot of money on this um, in the short term. Let's just let's just halt it. Let's just do a soft close of it. And I think for me, um, you know, without going doing a massive deep dive into the into this one fund in particular, I think it's a really good example and it's a really good reminder of how the financial system works. Right, the financial system is. The products that we buy, the ETFs, the funds, all of the different instruments that are out there are created by financial institutions to make a profit. And ultimately, they have control over the issuance of, of those. And they are there to make a profit themselves. They're there, to, um, they're there to create products that look attractive, pick up the fees off those, and to limit the level of potential loss that they're going to experience on it. Now, when you're talking about kind of vanilla things like ETFs that actually hold um, 
that actually hold equities and those sorts of things, you know, there's not really a losing trade on that. They're holding those things on your behalf. So from their perspective, they're picking up the management fees. Uh, regardless, it doesn't really matter if the funds go down a lot or up a lot and that sort of sorts of thing. But what I have always seen throughout my whole career in financial um, financial services, which is scarily over 15 years now, um, the more complex instruments get, the more likely they go to shit when you need them. You know, all these things sound sound really great, but at the end of the day, they will often get to a point where, and we, the reason why I'm saying this is because I saw this, a huge amount of this in 2008, um, which was when I was just new into the industry. And so many of these products that had been set up that were supposed to do certain things just turned out not to do them, you know, within the fine print that you sign, within the fine print of the the application forms that you sign, or or the boxes that you tick, there's always get out of jail free uh, clauses for these more more complicated sorts of investments. In 2008, it was things like the, the property funds. There were loads of them that were frozen. There were loads of um, there were loads of um, kind of liquidity uh, events that could be triggered and margin calls for and even things, that, lots of issues with even internally geared funds. Uh, there was a lot of agricultural based schemes, which were based on um, projections that were optimistic at best. And when things aren't as optimistic as that, the the returns and sorts of things that they, they promote um, definitely don't come to fruition. Lots and lots of um, problems that can arise and generally arise at a time when you really don't want them to, when the markets are incredibly volatile and when there's some real economic pain. So it's it, it for me it always comes back to the same thing. You know, I, I it's a reason why I tend to stay away from um, things that aren't vanilla. You know, and that doesn't mean they have to be um, low risk. You know, you can take quite a lot of risk with pretty vanilla investments. You know, if you look at things like the AIM stock market, if you're investing in smaller tech companies, if you're investing in tech emerging markets, um, you know, there's lots of ways you can take um, higher levels of risk if that's what you want to do, without getting into complex, complex, kind of derivative-based investments that no one quite can explain to you exactly how they work. You know, and for me, that's what I, you know, this is what I do for a job, and there are still investments that I come across that I, I, I can't get my head around how that is supposed to work for the investor, how the investor makes money um, and how the um, how the provider expects to make money off it. And for me, I think that's a really good investment lesson to, to always keep in mind. If you can't understand how something works, if you can't understand under what circumstances you will make a profit and under what circumstances you will not make a profit, and all the potential problems that can arise. If you can't get your head around that, you shouldn't invest in it. You know, if you're investing into the stock market, it's very straightforward to understand how you'll make money. If the company's share price goes up, if the companies pay dividends, you as the investor will make money. If the company's share price goes down, if the company doesn't pay any dividends, you as a shareholder will not make money. What are some of the reasons that can make a share price go up and down? Pretty obvious. Macroeconomic conditions, if there's large levels of unemployment, if there's less consumer, um, if consumers have left money to spend on those goods and services, the company will cr- will generate fewer, l- lower amounts of revenue, and vice versa. You know that's all really easy to understand. It's a very straightforward line between this is what the company does, this is how they make a profit. If they do that, I will make money as a shareholder. Really simple. 
some of these things like um, like the VXX are very are much more difficult to understand. Even if you can understand it from a thematic perspective, if you understand the concept of how it works, if you don't understand the actual mechanisms of Okay, what derivative do they buy in order to track that particular index? Um, when will that potentially break apart? What are the costs for holding that? All those sorts of things. You know, it can get really complex and I would just advise you stay away from that stuff unless you really, really understand exactly what it is you're buying. Okay, so last thing I want to have a talk about today, cost of living crisis, everything's fucking expensive. It's driving me mad. My energy bill is like 270 quid a month from 100 a month or something like it was um, a little while ago. So it's very, very easy to fall into this trap of feeling pretty negative about what's going on in the world. And I think it's time that we get away from that, from that kind of mindset, right? Because we can't change it. We can't change the fact that cost of living is going up. There's a limit to how much we can reduce our expenditure without our lives turning to complete shit. So all the advice that I've seen out there is about cutting your expenditure. I mean, well, there's this guy yesterday on Twitter, I can't remember who he was, some government guy or some head of Aviva or something saying like, um, you know, you should just, everyone should just like aim to take shorter showers. I mean, come on, mate, come on. Having a two-minute shower instead of a four-minute shower or a seven-minute shower is not going to move the needle on your bloody household budget. Honestly, it really pisses me off. Um and all these things, you know, people are almost saying things for the sake of saying things, right? A journalist from FT speaks to the head of Aviva, for example, and says, what should people do about the cost of living? Well, what's he going to say? What's she going to say? They have to say something. They normally say something that's stupid, um, that isn't going to move the needle, right? So I think we need to start focusing on the other side of the coin, right? You can reduce expenditure or you can increase your income. Increasing your income, I think, is actually a hell of a lot easier than cutting your expenditure, right? If you think about the increases in your energy bills, for example, like what are they going up? About $1,200 a year, I think on average is the increase. That's 100 quid a month, right? If you had to cut 100 quid a month from your budget, um, that's not to say it's hard to do, but if you're already living on a fairly strict budget or a fairly, you know, if money's not just flowing out your hands easy every month, you're probably going to have to cut something fairly significant um, in terms of quality of life, right? That's 100 quid isn't um, isn't a huge amount of money, but it's not nothing. So you can do that. You can cut more from your budget and then if something else comes up, that's an extra 100 quid and then you're cutting 200 quid a month from your budget and so on and so on and so on. Or you can try to make an extra 100 quid a month. And I think that is a much better use of our time and our energy. And this is not the first time I've talked about it, but I want to keep talking about it more because I think it's a much more positive way to get ourselves out of the problem. Because number one, it compounds. So if you find something that you can earn yourself 100 quid a month, you can probably end up making 200 quid a month, which means you can probably end up making 500 quid a month. The time and energy that you put into lots of different things, whether that is a side hustle, whether that's just a hobby that you decide to monetize a little bit, whether that's just doing some additional exams and stuff so you can increase your earning capacity in your current job, that's going to pay dividends, not just for the month where you do do it or the six months where you do it, but every single year for the rest of your life. It compounds. All future pay rises, for example, are percentage-based. So if you can earn a little bit more now, 
then that means you're going to earn the the future increases that you're getting are based off that higher amount. So it's a compounding compounding effect. So number one, think about the ways you can earn additional income. Now, there's a million and one different ways to do that. You can write blog posts. You can pick up some work on Upwork, um, on the side doing some freelancing stuff. You can start a YouTube channel. You can flip stuff on eBay. You can walk dogs. You can do all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm not going to teach you how to suck eggs. You can, uh, you, I'm sure you, if you sat down for an hour, you come up with a number of different ways you could earn a hundred quid a month. But the other thing I wanted to focus on, um, in terms of a couple of really specific tips, and these are for people who are in either married, uh, you know, ideally married for, for all these, um, or in a long-term relationship, some of these will work as well. And something that often gets, um, I've been kind of semi-working on a book, which I may never actually finish. I may just end up using the bits for the blog uh, for blog posts, but anyway, something that I've not uh, that I've kind of talked through in this book is what I call the family family lifestyle hack. I think family income lifestyle hack, and the reason for that is because the way our tax system works is that you're basically penalised if you have a family where you have one person who either earns all of the income or one person who earns the majority of the income. So. If that's you, if you're in a situation where you've got one person in the family who makes the majority of the income, a way to potentially, number one, earn more money as a whole, have a higher net income as a family, and number two, actually have a bit more time on your hands, get a bit of quality of life and work-life balance back, think really hard about how the income in your family is structured. Now, I've got some figures here that I want to talk through. And this, an article I wrote was um, for the website on the Hedge.io website was how much money do you need to live comfortably in the UK? And that got, it's a bit of a controversial one because the figure's quite high, but it's based on um, based on figures from the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association and the cost to raise a child. So I've not just picked the numbers out of out of thin air, but anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk through these figures because I've just got them. I've already done the calculations. So, in order to have a to um, live a comfortable have a comfortable life, and really it should be should be comfortable is probably the the wrong word. It's probably more a luxury standard of living because it includes holidays overseas and quite new cars and all that sort of stuff. To have a let's let's switch the word. Let's have a luxury standard of life. The figure that I've come to for a um, a family with two children is you need that it's going to cost you. 67,554 pounds per year. Now, again, don't flame me because that's a high number. Like I say, if you want to read the article, go on the go on the website, read it through and see how I've got to that figure. I've not just made it up. It's come from data and it is luxury. Anyway, that's the figure, 67,554. So there's two ways you can do that, right? To use kind of the, the two extremes, you've got We've got two options. We've got well, number one, we've got one a family with one person as the sole breadwinner, right? So we've got one person earning all of the income in order to get that 67,554. The other scenario is we've got two people both earning the same amount. So we've got the two parents of the two children both working and both earning the same amount in order to get that 67,554. Number one, the sole breadwinner. How much do you think that that person has to be earning in terms of a salary to generate an after-tax income of £67,554? Any guesses? See, if this was the YouTube live stream, you could actually guess. Uh, the answer to that is 105320 quid. 
So in order to generate 67 and a half grand after tax every year as an income, net income, you need to be earning 105,000 pounds. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money to be earning. Not many people out there are going to be able to earn a salary or, or a wage of 105k a year. That's significant. That puts you well, the average of the average in the UK is like 31, so it's like over 3 times the average. Right. So that's probably pretty un- unattainable for most people. Second option, family with two equal incomes. Now, each person, both the parents, need to be earning £44,875 each, which is a total combined between the two of them of £89,750 to get that same net income of 67554 So if you've got one person, they need to have a generate a, a gross income of £105,000 or just over. And if you've got uh, two people, they need a, they only need to generate ninety thousand pounds between the two of them. So that's fifteen grand less they can be earning in terms of net income, a uh, gross income, sorry, to get the same net income. Now that that's just an illustrative example, but my point is that if you are a couple and, and you're trying to work out ways that you can earn more money, it is more efficient if you've got one person who is a higher rate taxpayer or an additional rate taxpayer and one who is a non-taxpayer or a basic rate taxpayer, it's way more efficient to get the lower earning person to earn more money than to get the higher earning person to earn more money. They're going to get more bang for their buck if the lower earning person earns more because they're not going to pay as much tax. So that's just something that's really worth thinking about. And, you know, the kind of the really come... The, the scenario here is you've got someone who is the main breadwinner. You know, if they're looking at maybe taking a new job, that's going to mean they're going to have to, you know, work a lot harder, have a lot more time away from the family, but it's going to be a 15 grand increase. Or you've got another person who, the other person who's not working that much and would like to get into the workforce a little bit more, supporting them to get into the workforce to earn that bit more money is going to become a is going to be a much better option for the overall family family income. A couple of last little benefits to talk about with that. Number one, child benefit. If anyone in the family earns over fifty thousand pounds, you start to lose your child benefit. If you've got kids, once you hit sixty thousand, you lose that child benefit altogether. That is not the case if you've got two people earning a combined family income of that. Stupid, stupid as hell. If you've got one person in the family earning 60 grand a year, you get no child benefit. If you've got two people in the family earning 30 grand each per year, you get to keep your child benefit. Why does that make sense? Because the government can't be asked to work out a way to have it practically managed through the system. It's too hard basket, basically. Child benefit, it's not a life-changing amount of money, but if you've got two kids, it's like 1,800 quid a year. It's also nothing to be sneezed about. So again, the benefit of having two two people earning a more equal amount of money rather than one earning the majority. And the very last one, which is a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a uh, small one, doesn't make a huge difference, but marriage allowance. If you've got one person who is uh, a basic rate taxpayer or higher, and you've got another person in the in who in the marriage who is a um, a non-taxpayer, so they're not earning any money. Um, you can transfer 10% of your personal allowance to the other. So you can also backdate that. I think it's five years. Don't quote me on that. But if you don't, if you are in that situation, if you've got one person who earns the majority of the money and the other one who's not a taxpayer, definitely check out the marriage allowance because that could be, um, that could save you some cash as well. 
Right, guys, so we've talked through a bunch of stuff today. I've talked you through the FSCF's limit. We've talked about it about the VX at X being closed and also talked about how to let's let's focus on earning more money, right? And I'd really love to hear from you guys. What is your plan to earn more money? I'd really like to know if you've got a side hustle going on, are you looking to change career, are you looking to increase the amount you're earning from your job, please head over to the website, thehedge.io, get in touch with me, let me know, let me know, answer that question for me. What are you doing to try and increase your income? I would love to hear from you. And as always, if you have questions, if you have things you'd like me to answer on the podcast, then make sure you get in touch. Again, remember this Friday, 12 o'clock, every Friday, live stream on the Hedge YouTube channel. Head over there now, subscribe to the channel and you'll get notified when I go live there on Friday. I would love to see you guys. I'd love to answer your questions and we can make sure that we're all getting better with money together. Thanks as always guys for listening to the show and I really look forward to speaking to you next week.